0: Good morning. morning. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. You can scan the QR code, that'll take you to the same place. We are starting a new series this morning called True or False. Um, And the first message is this Christians shouldn't judge. It's an easy one, right? So we're going to be in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Thanks for being here. Those joining us online, Uh, We have ushers coming down the aisles. If you need a Bible to slip a hand up, they'll get one in your hands and you can borrow it this morning. Again, today I'm starting a new series called True or False, and I'll be addressing some rubber meets the road kinds of questions and thoughts. And today, again, we'll start with an easy one, Christians shouldn't judge. I can't talk about Matthew 7, 1 through 6 without talking about what seems to be the number one hot button in our culture today. A handful of you mentioned on your survey um, in the area of preaching that we need to talk more about cultural issues that we are faced with. So here you go. I'm speaking of the LGBTQ movement. Trying to figure out how to balance truth and love and grace and how to target the sin and not the person is a lifelong process. Today's message will address at least one piece of that journey as we talk about judging others. When we ask the question, is the LGBTQ movement right or wrong? Generally speaking, people will find themselves in one of three categories. Uh, The first category is, it is right, it's always right, it's right for all times, and it's right in all situations. That's one category. Another category of the other extreme would be, it is wrong, it's wrong for all people, wrong for all times, wrong in all situations. And then in the middle, another category, people might say, it is wrong for me, but not wrong for all people, not wrong for all times, and not wrong in all situations. So those are the three major categories that people will find themselves in. But how do people, how do you, how, how, how do I make right from wrong decisions? Because we do it every day, multiple times a day. And here are some of the ways that we use. Many people use the culture. Societal trends, upbringing, what, what a certain person says or a, a person that you trust or gut feeling. Some people use their emotions, religious books, the Bible. It's no surprise that people find themselves on all sides of the LGBTQ topic and so many other topics that divide our culture. Remember from a few weeks ago, maybe you will, maybe you won't, but traditional tolerance says love the sinner but hate the sin. It tells us that we can separate the sinner from the sin, that we can be tolerant towards a person but intolerant towards their actions. The more that a culture is uh, pressurized or polarized, the greater the chance of a standardized position in a response to that. And that is exactly what has happened in our culture over the LGBTQ movement. The pressure and the polarization have produced a mindset that is impossible, this is our culture saying this, to separate a person from their behavior. Our culture says you cannot live in the tension of loving a person while hating their sin. Our culture says if you hate the sin, you have to hate the sinner. To make sense of of today's message, we first have to talk about three things before we get into the passage. One, what does the Bible say about itself as the standard for living? Jesus has this beautiful prayer in John chapter 17, and he prays for all believers, and, and, and this is what he says in John chapter 17 and verse 17. Sanctify them, this is his cry to his father, this is what he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said of himself, thank you Pastor Anthony for mentioning this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Truth. So whether we're talking about an ethical standard or whether we're talking about um, morality in which the way that we carry out our ethical standard, I only look to one place. This is me speaking. I look to the word of God. Nothing else can be trusted. And I don't say that from a place of being overly righteous or arrogant or condemning. I'm coming from a place of unchanging truth and reliability. Our culture is trendy, not unlike TikTok. Culture is all about influence. It's about seeing how many people can be influenced to think and behave in a certain way. And then when there's an appearance of influential progress that's happening, it becomes like a snowball effect. When the snowball begins to go downhill, even believers get caught up in that which is in motion. So culture is fluid, and has no standard by which it looks to for guidance. The word of God is the complete opposite. It is uninhibited by cultural trends and influence. It is unchangeable from its original purpose and its original intent. It cannot be twisted, it cannot be manipulated, it does not cause confusion, so I look to the word of God. Secondly, what does the Bible teach about uh, about the sinner? Genesis 1:26 Then God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground." God's image is called imago Dei. It's a it's a mere reflection. We are created in the image of God. In what ways have we been created in his image? We're relational, we're moral, we're social, we communicate love, we're spiritual. We're created in the image of God. Every living being is created in the image of God. What does the Bible say about sin? After God created the earth, he created Adam and Eve, and their relationship with God was absolutely beautiful. It was absolutely perfect. In Genesis three, the fall of mankind and sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God and the fall of mankind left nothing untouched. Every aspect of creation was affected. What does sin do? It twists the truth. It manipulates the original intent. It causes unsettledness. It causes confusion. Jesus went to the cross as a substitute for us to pay the penalty for our sin. The weight of our sin was put upon him. While we will all stand and give an account of our sin and behavior one day, he died for all sin, our sin, including the sin of those in the LGBTQ movement. Jesus took upon himself all sin of all people of all time. So then, what differentiates a believer from an unbeliever? A believer is someone who has faith. believe that Christ died for their sin and because of his grace has offered the forgiveness of our sin. That's what a believer is. A believer, therefore, is someone who, who understands and acknowledges and receives the work of Christ on the cross. That is the gift of salvation. The sin of a believer because of God's mercy is not held against them. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So because of his love, because of his grace, because of his mercy, Jesus died for the sin for for the believer and the unbeliever, but stick with me, but because of God's holiness and because of God's justice, the sin of an unbeliever, because they have refused Christ, remains to be punished. For an unbeliever, because they have not been declared righteous, which means being made right with God, they remain identified with their sin. God's wrath is against all unrighteousness. Their sins, though Jesus died for them, are held against them because they, not, they have not received the merciful gift of salvation which is available to them. That's the difference of what separates a believer from an unbeliever. The cross changes a person's position with Christ, with God, from unrighteous to righteous, from orphan to adopted, from, un, from shackled to unshackled, from slave of sin to slave of righteousness, from sinner afar far from God to a new creation. Did you get all that? We're going to take a test later. We'll do another survey. What I essentially just shared with you is the gospel message. <clears throat> <clears throat> it's the reason that, that believers gather to worship. It's the reason we live in freedom. It's the reason that we live as ambassadors of Christ. The same sin that God hates and person God loves is the same sin we are called to hate in person we are called to love. So let's see what God's word says about Judging. Matthew 7, 1 through 6, the first point is check your motive, verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Verse 1 of chapter 7 is at the top of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture. Do not judge, or you'll be judged. The world uses this verse as a, as a means to defend itself. Let me live my life, you live your life. It's not uncommon whenever any mention of sin even enters the conversation, there's the response, isn't there? Don't judge. I would like to use the LGBTQ movement and the recent cultural phenomenon as examples as we make our way through this passage. The cultural phenomenon I'm speaking of include, but are not limited to, Bud Light's using a transgender as a marketing ploy for a sweepstakes challenge, the store target exaggeration of the LGBTQ clothing line and other wearables designed by a Satanist, and the uh, uh, MLB, it's a baseball league, particularly the L.A. Dodgers inviting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Well, there have always been believers who stand against these kinds of things, these kinds of movements. There are now people who don't even profess Christ who are saying enough is enough. It's gone too far. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Do not judge, what does that mean? There's three kinds of judgment I think that are wrapped up in that phrase. There's the superficial judgment which means passing judgment on someone based solely on uh, appearance. Um, We know from experts that we can do that, we're really good, we can do that in seven seconds of meeting someone. Hypocritical judgment and self-righteous judgment, those are kind of the three that are wrapped up in that phrase, do not judge. Are people right in their assessment of of believers that we can be judgmental? Uh, Let me speak only for myself, yes. Have I ever passed judgment on someone based solely on their appearance? Yes. Have I ever passed hypocritical judgment on someone? Yes. Have I ever passed self-righteous judgment on someone? Yes. Now, without passing judgment on you, have you ever struggled with judgment? Yes? No one? Okay. All right. Let's not forget what I talked about a minute ago. Every person who breathes the same air as you was created in the image of God. Foundationally, we are all equal. There is no one better than another. At the most foundational level, all people are equally loved by God and equally created by God with the potential to be the reflectors of God's glory. We will only learn to live among God's created people without, judging an attitude, without this judging attitude when we learn to see people through the eyes of Jesus. Every person that God created and watches over, every single person has imperfections, failures, sins, shortcomings, and yet he chooses to see us through the eyes of Jesus. Knowing that they, knowing that we all have the potential to become like a son. The Bible says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Not just some, all. None of us are deserving. When we're willing to see people through the eyes of Jesus, what we will notice is that they are people. Just like us. People who have dreams and goals and hopes. And major insecurities and hurts and pains and bad decisions. And most importantly, what we will see is that all people are in need of a savior. When we're being judgmental, it shows up everywhere in our life. It shows up in the way we talk, in our speech, in our posture, in our, in our conversations, in our attitude and behavior and in our actions. Everywhere. A judgmental attitude is a bus ride on a direct route to a critical spirit it will deliver you every time. Do you ever find yourself judging someone and then say something like, oh, but who am I to judge? Right after you judged them. Like that cancels out all of my thoughts and all of my words, right? So why do we do it? Because it makes us feel better. Judging acts as this uh, diversion so we don't have to look at ourselves. Verse two, The measurement that we use will be twofold, come our judgment. What is that saying? By God, when we have to give him an account, and by others while we're here on this earth, that which we dish out will also receive from other people. You will reap what you sow, don't expect to judge others and not have it come back your way, either in this present age or when believers stand before Christ. So how do we do this? Number two, stop planking. That's not an excuse to stop exercising. Verses three through five. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Verse five, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What are these three verses saying? What are they they telling us? We are way too quick to overlook our own sin and struggles to the point to point out someone else's. To see a piece of sawdust in another person's life, you would have to be extremely intentional to see it and look for it. And sometimes... It's not enough to just see it. We then form this judgmental opinion about it, and often we make judgment, whether in thought only or, or just telling everybody else about it or our attitude. And, and whenever we judge, we must have a standard to judge them by. That's the only way you can judge. Most often, you know what the standard is sometimes? It's us itself. We have decided in our minds what a person should look like and act like or at least within this this range of acceptability. All the while, we're pointing out the speck in other people's lives. We have learned to live with a plank sticking out of our own eye. How do we do that how do I investigate other people's lives and see a speck of sawdust when I have this sticking out of my own eye verse 3 we have to be either really talented or really insecure to overlook a plank in our own life to see the speck in someone else's. I I wonder if instead of recognizing and dealing with our own imperfections, our own shortcomings, our own sin and failures, we've we've just learned how to live with them. Have we just gotten used to living with a plank sticking about our own life that we don't even notice it anymore? Have we stopped noticing the damage that this does? I, got, I got, Let me go to my left eye dominant. I can see your speck better, right? All the while... This is knocking people in the heads. This is tripping people up. This is, this is ruining relationships. We will find and judge anyone by finding the speck just so we don't have to deal with the plank, even with the people that are closest to us. Because I know how difficult it can be at times thinking of things that we might judge people on, I decided to think of a few things that might help us. We might say or think things like, did you hear about what their kid did? Did you see what she was wearing? Can you believe that they would allow their so-called Christian kids to go to that movie? The only time I ever see them in church is on Easter and Christmas. Should I tell them we meet every week? Can you believe they're Vikings fans? Sorry, that's actually my own. I gotta confess that. That's that's just me. Will you forgive me for judging you? It seems like they're really not that close as a couple. They're always buying new things. They have to be unhappy. They're living way beyond their means. How can they afford that house? If they didn't work so much, maybe they would have time to spend with their kids. Their kids get whatever they want whenever they want it. They need to go to a class on priorities. Did you see all the empty beer cans in his garage? Is he starting a recycling business? superficial, hypocritical, self-righteous judgment. Many of the things I just mentioned are common specks of sawdust that we are really good at finding in other people. You know what I love about Jesus? I love a lot of things about Jesus. Uh, But the one thing I love about Jesus is this. He has the ability to see the potential in somebody's life, not their presence. Jesus is less concerned about who we are and more concerned about who we are becoming. If a person is a non-believer and they make bad decisions or or they just do evil stuff or they treat people bad or they act in such a way that you just wanna punch them in the throat, newsflash, they don't know Christ. They don't have a transforming power of the Holy Spirit living inside of them, transforming them. Using the LGBTQ movement, are we passing judgment on the sin or the sinner? How's your plank? Verse five. It's only after you have taken care of the plank that you even need to worry about the speck. This is where the truth of God's word comes in. God is truth, and He is the standard. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6 isn't about other people. It's about you. It's about me. As believers, our job is not simply to point it out. It is to help them remove it through gentleness, through love. The removal of a speck first requires the removal of the plank that protruding plank will keep you at a distance. You cannot help someone else in their sin because you can't get close enough to them. The goal is to never heap condemnation on others, but to point them to the freedom they can have in Christ through forgiveness and repentance. Whoever needs to hear that. As one commentator put it, when you can so readily overlook your own wickedness, why are you more clear-sighted than an eagle in spying out the failures of others? So we now know that superficial, hypocritical, and self-righteous judgment are wrong. We also know that in humility, we need to deal with our own plank first. But is there ever a time when it's okay to judge? Number three, know your audience. Verse six, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. While believers were not to judge others, Jesus warned against a complete lack of discernment about their attitude towards the gospel. The dogs referenced weren't like household dogs, they, they were wild dogs, they were scavenger dogs. In the Old Testament, pigs were known as unclean animals. Anyone who touched an unclean animal was also made ceremonially unclean and was restricted from the temple to worship. The dogs and the pigs referenced here are unclean, unholy people who, when presented with the gospel, treat it with contempt. The pearls are the truth in the gospel. Simply all to say that it is futile to preach the gospel to those who do not want to listen and people who cause more damage to the gospel than good. And the Bible's command that we not judge others does not mean that we cannot show discernment. Jesus has given us permission to tell right from wrong by using the moral standard of God's word, of his only word. When Jesus said do not judge others, he did not mean that no one can identify sin for what it is based on God's definition of sin. And and the Bible's command that we not judge others does not mean there, there should be no mechanism of dealing with sin. Believers are warned against judging others unfairly, but Jesus commands right judgment when it's against sin. We're taught over and over in scripture to be discerning. Christians are often accused of judging or intolerant when speaking out against sin. Opposing sin is not wrong. Speaking out against sin is not wrong. Jesus is not saying live in fear or keep quiet or don't stand for truth. What he is saying is this. You judge the sin, leave the sinner up to me. God uses us in the lives of others, sinners, to express his character. So how do we apply this passage as an example with the LGBTQ movement? In other words, how do we practically respond? We recognize that all people represented by each of the letters is in fact a person created by God in his image and deserves love and dignity. We know God loves and values every person as one of his own creation. We acknowledge that since the fall of man, evil and wickedness is running wild, but not without consequence. Anyone choosing a lifestyle outside of God's design will be held accountable for their decisions, most importantly, if the gospel is rejected. We know from scripture that the LGBTQ movement is a distortion of God's original design. It is a sin. We know we don't have to sacrifice or compromise our beliefs for the sake of a relationship. Judge the sin. We must know what aligns with God, what aligns with his character, his word, and what goes against. The LGBTQ movement does not align with God's character and does not align with his word. Following Christ means living in the tension. That's what it means. There are two buckets. And some of you were just reminded you need to go to Menards after church. Most people tend to, to lean one direction or the other, like one extreme or the other, like, like this, or sometimes they don't even have one, like this is the only bucket, there. they're way out of whack, or, or like this, and they don't have this one, and so most people tend to lean one direction or the other. As an example, when we talk about all grace, all grace can lead to... Um, our ability or our desire to turn our head and pretend that there's nothing wrong. Just loving the person while, while, standing, while not, not standing for truth. Misunderstanding scripture, um, that it's not our place to discern sin. All grace is just this love, you know, just love. The other extreme, all truth, can lead to condemnation, pointing the finger, spewing hatred, showing disgust, and shaming. We'll start with truth. We need to fill these buckets to live in the tension. Truth is to hold a proper theology of sexuality. It's to have a biblical understanding of Imago Dei, that all people are created in God's image, that all people are born with exact same size sin nature We live in a very broken world. All sin is disgusting and wicked. All sin. My sin. All people will be held accountable. We're called to pursue a godly lifestyle. We judge and discern sin. Let's talk about grace. We see people as people. We love, value, respect people as people. We treat all people with dignity. We extend grace, give them what they don't deserve. We extend unconditional love, patience, and kindness. But biblically, friends, this is, this, this is the, the major takeaway. Biblically, we are called to live and this is the hardest thing as a believer in any of these topics, we are called to live in the tension of both of these things. These buckets are filled through the word of God, through the truth of who God is. That's how we fill these buckets. We're called to live in this tension. This is the hardest thing because it's super easy to do one or the other. This is the hardest place to be. How do we do this? We do it through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. John chapter eight, live life in the Spirit. As you're striving to live life in the Spirit, we are inviting our God to fill both of these buckets as we walk daily in the Spirit. Secondly, We study the life of Christ because he did this pretty amazingly. He did it really amazingly in John chapter 8 with the woman who was caught in adultery and the Pharisees drug her out and said, stone her to death. And he says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And what happened? Little by little, they all just went away, right? And what did Jesus say? He showed grace, but then he spoke truth and he said, go and leave your life of sin. Woman at the well, same story. Friends, we have to be okay with living in the tension. This is hard for me. You think, oh, Pastor Andy, you don't get it. We have family members who struggle with this, we wrestle with this every day. Oh, I get it. We have family members who are gay. We get it. We have to figure out how to do this too. We're not exempt from this. We have two buckets that we got to figure out how to carry in conversation and the way that we respond and the way that we behave, the way we treat people. I get it. My prayer is that we learn how to live in the tension. My prayer is that we deal with the the plank first. Let me leave you with one thing. 2 Corinthians 7:10 It says this, godly sorrow, and I put in parentheses kind of an explanation, godly sorrow, which means to grieve the sins we have committed, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow, which means to grieve the pain of life, brings death. Unhealthy judgment is an encouragement for worldly sorrow and not an invitation for godly sorrow. Father, thank you for um, your word. The rubber meets the road. God, would you show us through your son Jesus, through the power of the spirit, how do we live in the tension of truth and grace? How do we fill both buckets? as we navigate this life, as we're confronted with this fallen world. Your son Jesus modeled it so amazingly. Holy Spirit, would you teach us how to do that? In Jesus' name, amen.